why things go wrong and how to put them right. This is part three. And we're continuing on a topic that I started last Sunday night. Getting out and staying out of personally destructive choices. If you remember going back to the very first study, we looked at broad categories of where problems and difficulties come from. Looking at things like the nature of living in a fallen world. Looking at uh, the destructive actions and choices of others. Looking at our own personally destructive, harmful choices. Uh, Looking at things like uh, the purifying and chastening work of God. These broad categories of where problems come from. And then last week, we started looking particularly at the third one. I said we'd start there and, and go up and down covering the list. But the most obvious area to start examining is problems caused by Bad choices, foolish choices, wicked choices, whatever word you want to use. So we started on looking at problems coming from personally destructive choices last week. And I said there were three steps to getting out of those choices. Um, Those are probably, I don't know if they are yet, but they will be up online, the video and the, the notes and all of that. But the three steps out, and we took a whole night looking at these, so I'm just going over them quickly. Confession, belief, and renewed obedience to the Lord. And we looked at those for, well, probably about ten minutes each. We were at it for about a half hour. Those three uh, points are like the three legs on a stool. You you have to have them all together. Uh, Take any two without the other and it doesn't work. It's like if you have a a tripod and you take one of the legs off, it's just not going to stand. So there has to be confession. There has to be belief in God's restoring, renewing grace. There has to be renewed obedience to the Lord. I said we were going to talk about how to get out of personally destructive choices last week. And at the close, I said, the following Sunday, that's tonight, we'll look at staying out. Staying out of sinful choices in the future. There's, there's just no use getting out if you can't stay out. Nobody wants to just be getting out of trouble over and over and over and over again. Maybe you know someone like that. But the Bible says there is a way to stay out. God wants to direct all of his power. God wants to direct all of his power toward keeping you and me from falling. He says so. That's in Jude. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only wise God, our Savior. Anybody that doesn't think Jesus is called God in the New Testament, you just need to wake up a little bit. To the only God, our Savior. Now, there are two things talked about there. Keep you from stumbling. Present you blameless. Do you see those in in, in verse 24? To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. Now, the second one... We have no trouble really believing because... Jude is saying what the Apostle John says, that when Jesus comes, we will be like him 
because we will see him as he is. So there's going to be this glorious transformation of our character. The person in this church who annoys you the most, you are going to think is a beautiful, beautiful thing one day. They will be just like Jesus. You will be just like Jesus. Okay, so there's that reality to, to present you blameless before his presence. But the first part is harder to believe. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. It's, it's the now, it's the here as we live life this week to be kept from stumbling, tripping up, falling down, messing up. So here's the important question. That's a wonderful promise that we have in Jude. That he is able, did you see that? He is able to keep you from stumbling. How, how is he going to do that? Like that, it seems to me that's what you do. You read a verse like that and then you ask the right questions of the text. How does God do that? What's the process. What does he do to keep me from falling or stumbling? Do I have a part in it? Is it something he does all by himself? Is it, and if so, is it automatic? Does it happen while I'm sleeping? Is it an experience I can get at an altar? And then once I have that experience, I, I won't have to worry about falling or stumbling ever again. How does God, by his Spirit, keep me from stumbling? And I'll tell you, for starters, I'll tell you how I think King David thought that process happened. I think he had tremendous insight to share on the subject when in prayer he asked God to do something very special for him. It's in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Is that in your notes? Read it with me out loud, okay? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And the phrase that jumps out is that one, see if there be any grievous Way, And the grievous way is, is the thing that brings grief to God. The thing that grieves the Spirit of God. See if there's anything in my heart that, that I might not be that troubled by. But that you would be very troubled by. Lord, help me to see what's going on inside my own skin the way you see what's going on. On inside my own skin. I know I've used this illustration before. It's just the best one. I talked to a long ago. I talked to a lady once in a, in a mall where they, they have those. Have you seen them sometimes in Vaughn Mills? Sometimes in other malls. They have the, those little labs and they're teaching them to be like uh, seeing eye dogs. Have you ever seen that? They're just they're tiny little pups, and they've already got the stuff on them, and a little, and they and they're trying to train them because one day they're going to be seeing eye dogs for the blind. And the lady explained what the hardest part of the training process was, and the hardest part of the training process is to teach the dog 
to see things from the perspective of the person the dog is leading. When you think about it, it just makes sense. Because the dog is going to be about, from here, the dog's going to be about, what, this high? But it's leading a person who is going to be like me, 6'2". <laughs> what? So if the dog is just looking at its surroundings from the dog's perspective, if it sees a table, well, the dog can just walk under the table, right? But if the dog is leading me, it's quite a trick to teach a dog to say, wait a minute, I can go under here, but Horbin there, he's going to walk right into this thing. And it is a, it is a, a marvel, really, that this animal can be trained to see life from the perspective of an upright human being. David praying, Lord, see if there be some grievous way in me. He wouldn't pray that if he were already aware of the grievous way in his, in his own heart. You see what I'm saying? David is saying, Lord, Help me to view at what's going at inside my own mind. Help me to look at that from the perspective of you, not the perspective of me. See if there be some grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So David prays, good praying, good praying. And he says, God, what's, what's trending in my heart? What, what, is, what is there that's still in an incubation stage in my life that I don't, I don't sense the presence of yet? But you see starting to form something of pride, something of greed. What is it that, that you see in my heart that breaks your heart that I presently am still untroubled by? What's going on in my unexamined self? Those words really correspond very nicely with our present study. He wants God to make him clean on the inside. And then he wants God to, quote, lead me in the way everlasting. Cleanse me, know me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He wants God to stay close enough to him so that there's, a, there's the influence of God. Not just the belief in God, but the influence of God to show him where he should put his feet day by day so that he won't stumble. That's what we're looking at tonight. How, how do we keep from falling? How does God want to do this in my life and in yours? And I'm going to argue that there are three passages, and we'll, we'll go a little quicker. I want to introduce it. This won't take that long. There are three passages of Scripture that are designed to keep us from falling, designed to keep us in the way everlasting. The Ten Commandments will help guide your actions. The Beatitudes 
will help guide your motives or your attitudes or your, your inner self, your thoughts. And 1 Corinthians 13 will guide you in your relationships. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Just the first two. With Ten Commandments, Beatitudes. I'm not doing a detailed study on the Ten Commandments. I've done that. There's a whole series, uh, Foundations for Reconstruction. Each commandment, a whole week on each commandment, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that's online. The Ten Commandments will regulate your behavior. I think if you took a survey, you would find um, Christians are kind of divided and unsure as to what the role of the Ten Commandments is or ought to be in the life of the Christian. I think there are two mistakes. Two extremes. First, you'll have people who think they're Christians because they obey the Ten Commandments. You've met them. Are you a Christian? Yes. I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't murder. I don't commit adultery. Of course I'm a Christian. I live in a Christian country to boot. But the Bible makes it pretty clear that the law, the Ten Commandments included, the law is is absolutely powerless as an instrument of redemption, an instrument of salvation. Um, the law is powerless to, to undo the effects of the fall. In fact, the Bible's pretty clear that the law was never given to save anybody. Paul talks about it in Romans 7, 7, 8, 9, where he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? He's been writing about how you know, he thought he was doing fine until the law comes, and it just seems to expose what's in his heart. An instrument of death, he calls it. And then he wants to make sure that he's not misunderstood. Do you think I'm saying the law is bad, sinful? He goes, by no means. For if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Remember that sentence. I would not have known sin. For, now he's going to explain. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment. That's an interesting phrase. Look what it did. Produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. He doesn't mean he's sinless. He means there's, there's, there's no way to define What's going on in our own hearts beyond just some kind of psychological state? But there's no way to know for sure, oh, this is displeasing to God until you have the law telling you. It it gives you that information. And and so that's what he means when sin kind of... Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. When the commandment came, sin came alive. Because now I see... That just that desire, that desire all by itself, the desire for more. We can easily think of that as just part of our natural selves. And Paul says it's not. But we won't recognize it until you have that particular commandment. And I, then I say, oh, this isn't just something going on in my skin. This is wrong. This is wrong. Sin springs to life as sinful. It's labeled, it's tagged, it's recognized. That's what he means, I would not have known sin. We we don't 
accurately comprehend the mechanics of sin until we see it as something deeper than just isolated actions. Sin is what produces the actions. Paul thought he was doing fine. Read Philippians, especially chapter 2. He talks about a righteousness, having a righteousness according to the law. He says, I was, here's his word, blameless. Having a righteousness according to the law, I was blameless. But he wasn't sinless when, apart from the outward works of his Jewish religion, the law came and exposed what was going on inside his mind and inside his heart, and he could just see the reality of sin. Oh, he had all the regulations, he kept all the fasts, he ate the right foods, he kept the right associations, said the right prayers, was in the temple at the right times, mingled with the right people. He was doing it all right, blameless, but it wasn't reaching my heart. Then he mentions one of the Ten Commandments. The law, if taken seriously, points sinful people like us to Jesus. So, no. Regarding this first mistake that people make, what's the role of the law? The law doesn't make you a Christian. It will never make you a Christian. You cannot earn your standing with God by keeping the law. No one will be saved, Paul says, by works of the law. It can't save anyone. It's designed to draw us to Jesus Christ. All right, so I said there are two mistakes people make with the law. It's designed to regulate our actions, but Christians aren't sure how to make this work. Some people think that it's an instrument of salvation. It's not. It will never work that way. Some people think they're saved by grace, and as such... The law no longer has any place in their lives. And they're very proud. They're very proud. They'll go from relationship to relationship. They're married and they're living with someone else's spouse. They, they, also, they cheat on their income tax. Uh, and then when you talk to them, they'll say, but uh, we're not under the law. We're under grace. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And they're great at just firing out verses. Those statements, while true, we're not under the law as a means of salvation. We're not under the condemnation of the law for our sins. We are saved by grace. There's no condemnation. That's in your notes, I think, Romans 8, 1 to 3, to those who are in Christ Jesus. But that's not the same as saying the law has no place in our lives at all. So true, the law is not an instrument of salvation. True enough, we're not under the law in the sense that uh, we need the works of the law to earn a standing with God, but, but we, we use the law as a guide for our actions. Well, Pastor Don, what's different? Could you answer that question? If someone, I don't mean you have to right now out loud, but ask yourself, if someone came up to you and said, what's the difference between the people of God having the law in the Old Testament and the people of God having the law in the New Testament? That is a fundamental question that Christians need to have an understanding of. So, yes, we still use the law. That little chart, it's, 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 I'm not going over it in detail. The, you see where it has Ten Commandments and then related New Testament scriptures? So all that, all that chart is designed to do, you can look it up later on, it's just designed to show how the New Testament makes constant reference to each of those commandments. 
So the chart is just to make the point that I'm saying right now. The New Testament church talked a lot about the Ten Commandments. But it wasn't an instrument of salvation. So what's the difference between the Christian church and its relationship to the law and the law of God as, as given in the Old Testament? I'm going to tell you three important differences. I'm not sure these are in your notes. Um, first, there's a difference in motive. A difference in motive. We, we, we keep the law out of love for the Lord. So when John says his commandments aren't burdensome, he doesn't mean that they don't require any effort. What he means is we don't keep the law because it's written on tablets of stone, Ezekiel, and we look them up and we think, gee, I better do this. We keep the law because they've been carved into a fleshly heart. Your, your mind, your soul, the inner you, your thoughts. That, that the law of God comes into your life in such a way that because you've been saved by grace apart from the works of the law, what it does is it makes you love the giver of grace and you want to please him. And so the motive, it's not that the commandments aren't there anymore. It's not that God changed his mind But my motive for doing those things isn't a cold, legal, calculated, balancing the scales of justice so I get enough good points to earn God's favor. It's not that. I have God's favor. And that produces a a gratitude in my heart. So the motive has been changed. I don't abstain from stealing because I think I'll be caught and stoned to death, like they did in the book of Leviticus. I abstain from stealing because I know it grieves the Holy Spirit. Another difference. In spite, in the spirit of the uh, New Testament, I don't just deal with the outward action when I consider my sin. I deal with the root attitude behind the action. You don't see this talked about quite so much except in that one commandment that Paul picks on covetousness. So I trace all actions to their sinful root in a deeper way. I get that from Jesus. Adultery comes from lust. Murder comes from anger. So on, down the list. There's, there's something in the heart that, that incubates and spawns those kinds of sins, and you aren't righteous just because you deal with the outward action. The Holy Spirit wants a changed heart and a renewed mind. Let me give you one other difference. There's three. One other difference between, between the way um, uh, Christians think about the law and sin in the New Testament as compared to the old. Sin isn't dealt with in a spiritual sense until the outward sinful action is replaced by what I'm going to call the principle of the opposite spirit. Let me just give you an example. An example of that would be in Paul's writing to people who were thieves, who stole things. And he talks about them in the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians 4.28, he says... These, these were people come from all sorts of backgrounds, and they give their heart to Jesus, okay? How is, 
So here's a person who was maybe poor, who was trying to take care of a family. Let's put the best twist we possibly can on it. We don't know. And so he's maybe had a lifelong addiction to stealing what he can steal to to look after his family. Now he gets saved. How is the Lord going to, or opening question, how is God going to keep him from falling? How's that going to work? What's going to keep him from falling back into that old life? And what Paul doesn't do is come and just say, bad, don't you steal anymore. He does identify it as a sin. But here's what, here's what he says, Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief, not hypothetical, there's someone he's writing to. Let the thief no longer steal. Okay, there's, obviously, that's what the commandment says. But rather, oh wait, there's more. Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Okay, well that, I guess that makes sense. If you're going to take care of your family without stealing, Paul says, get a job. Nothing really startling in that. But that's not the principle of the opposite spirit. There's more. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you see what Paul's doing? Here's here's how the Lord keeps people from falling and stumbling. Here's how the law gets fulfilled in a deeper sense in the New Testament. Here's a guy that was breaking the commandment, thou shalt not steal. And this is a commandment breaker. He's stealing. And Paul knows if you just come up to him and say, "Mm -mm, that's bad, don't you steal. The Bible says so. Well, he'll go home and he'll try for a little while. But he may be just sort of habituated in this, this kind of action. But he's going to be in a church now. He's going to be with a body of believers. Somehow, in some way, Paul assumes they're going to get this guy work. But the idea behind the work isn't just so that he won't have to steal. Stealing is this. Stealing is coming to what's yours and taking it. What's Paul want to build into this thief's life? What he wants to build into his life is work, so you've got something, and giving it. Do you see the opposite? Taking, stealing, finding somebody who is just like you, who maybe is a thief, doesn't have enough, but you've been working so that you can give out now. When is a thief not a thief? When he stops stealing? No. When is a thief no longer a thief? When he starts giving. See that little bell went off? That was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> In there I give you some questions to look at each of those. It's, it's, it's so easy to live life not thinking about commandments being broken. And there's just, you don't need to do that right now. I just wanted you to have some stuff to, to, uh, to think about. Ten Commandments will guide your actions. Know them. Do not use them as a means of earning your standing with Jesus. You can't do that. But from a heart of thankfulness, find out what it is that's grieving the Holy Spirit and out of love for the Lord, replace those things with positive obedience. Two, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes will regulate your actions. And now you start to see, I think you start to see, when you take on whole the scope of the New Testament and our, and our sanctification, our growth in holiness, our being kept from falling. That's what we're talking about here. 
Last week, getting out of bad choices. This week, staying out. Understanding how the law works and and using the commandments to sense the will of God specifically for your life. But deeper now, deeper, going through uh, the Beatitudes especially and, and looking at these provisions given by the Holy Spirit for regulating the inside of your life. You don't have a sound automobile just because... Uh, you know, the windows are clean and you've, you've taken care that there's no rust on the body of the car. But if the engine's shot, it's not, it's not a reliable vehicle. And so it's the inside that makes such a huge difference. Sin must be treated from its source. Long before commandments get broken, the heart, the mind, the affections have perhaps been careless... Beatitudes are God's way of having the Holy Spirit work in our hearts in response to David's prayer. See if there be some grievous way in me. Not, that's a very different question from see if I've done something bad. See if I've done something wrong. Okay, that's all, that's out here. But when I start praying, see if there's some grievous way in me. So before it reaches the surface of my life, that's what the Beatitudes are for. Sometimes you can recognize the proper attitude by seeing its opposite. So that's how we're going to wrap up. You got that little chart, Beatitudes and the opposite attitude? Okay, poor in spirit. And, And these are my definitions, so these aren't biblical words. I admit that. Poor in spirit. An attitude of reaching out to God for strength and resource. The opposite of poor in spirit, the self-made man or woman. Able to make it on his or her own, I'm as, I'm as, or I'm, I'm as good as the next person. That is, a, that is a disease in the body of Christ, especially if you talk to someone under 30. And if you question them about something going on in their, in their life, it's, it's painfully easy for them to say, Pastor Don, like, this, we all, this is what everybody does. That's the opposite of poor in spirit. That's a way of, of, of buoying up a spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. A sense of one's own sin and unworthiness that leads to repentance and confession. The opposite of that attitude would be excusing sin. Planning to cover up his tracks to enjoy the pleasures of sin without being caught. Meek, verse 5. An attitude of humility and teachability. Talk to a meek person. The opposite of the meek person, this isn't in the notes, is in the book of Proverbs would be described as the fool. And, And the writer of Proverbs has this way of saying, you know, you can come up with words of correction will accomplish more in a wise person than a rod and stripes on the back of a fool. You you can pummel that person senseless and they will just never see what's wrong. Unteachable. So the meek, there's an attitude of humility, teachability, a willingness to be corrected by conscience, by the word, by the Holy Spirit, 
And I would have added one more thing that takes the most humility of all, sometimes to be corrected by a brother or sister in the body of Christ. I would far rather God speak to me with an angel and just correct me than have one of you come up and say, Pastor Don, have you noticed this going on in your life? That's very hard for us. That's very hard for us. That's, that's where meekness will show. Four, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. A heart that finds its greatest delight and fulfillment in forsaking self for the will and way of God's Spirit. The opposite of that, one whose heart is most fulfilled in physical, material accomplishments. Spiritual pursuits are seen as remote and otherworldly. And it's so striking to me that when Jesus talks about, about this desire for righteousness, he, he, the first thing he ties it to is hunger. Because we all know what hunger is. Well, not as much as many places in the world, but we think we know what hunger is. Where there's, it, it's not academic. There's something that starts to, starts to yank at your insides. You feel hunger. A desire for righteousness. The merciful. An attitude of kindness and forgiveness rooted in an ongoing appreciation of personal salvation and cleansing freely received from Jesus. The opposite. One who keeps track of wrongs suffered. A heart driven by personal revenge. People get what they deserve. Be nice to me, I'll be nice to you. Pure in heart. A life that is driven by only one passion. Same on the inside as the outside. No mixed motives. No part-time spiritual pursuits. Pure in heart is, uh, it, it's like when we were kids and dad would give us money to get mom a present on Mother's Day. And we would go out and you'd buy her some perfume. And it made no sense to me when you would go and look in the ladies' perfume department and see some tiny little bottle. Now remember, this is a long time ago, so I know the numbers have changed drastically, believe me. But back then, some tiny little bottle for, for 40 bucks when you could get, like, evening in Montreal, <laughs> you know, in, in the 1.5 liter size for 250. But this one is, is more the pure scent. This one's just, well, goodness knows, you can, you can put it in your windshield washer fluid. You can, you can... Pure. Pure in heart means, means that, that um, pure in heart means the way you hear me talking about my love for Jesus right now is the way Rini sees my love for Jesus when I'm at home. And it's, it's the way I hope I am when I'm in my office with the door closed and there's nobody there. That, 
that it's, it's not three different people. It's, it's who I genuinely am, the pure in heart. Now, we all struggle with that. We're creatures of pride. We're creatures of pride, but we have no idea the witness potential for the church of Jesus Christ if the world would look and just see more and more and more of us who were more frequently pure in heart. Uh, I pray about that a lot for me. I pray about that a lot. And the funny thing is, and we'll, we'll wrap up. I'm taking too much time. So you've got the notes for the rest of it. The funny thing is, the more you pray about it, the more you become aware of all the areas where you really aren't pure in heart. Isn't that just like the Holy Spirit to do that? And you feel that there's, you feel like there's, there's more of the Christian walk to grow into. I've never felt, I'm 60 years old, and I've never felt I had less to think about spiritually. I, I, there's always more to think about spiritually as God starts to unfold his will and way before you. Let's pray.